What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. You know, I don't want to just play it safe. So two-string, it'd be three-string, four-string, five, six-string arpeggios. But people kept on telling me to slow down. You know, I said, hey, slow down. I'm like, oh, no. remember, less is more. And I always said, how can that be? How can less be more? It's impossible. More is more. Telling you, bro, what's been happening, bro? Uh, not too much. Still hitting more peggios? Hey everybody, welcome back to the Riff Raff. Shane Terrio here. Thanks for tuning in. How are you? I am doing great. Thank you for asking. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever in the world you may be listening to this from. Uh, first, some quick business. It's been a while since I've done these. Um, I just haven't had time. I'm, I'm getting back to the swing of it now, so hopefully they'll be more regular for you. Also, I sent out a blurb um, uh, last week. Basically what happened is I had to switch servers. So I'm in danger of losing my whole subscriber base um, by doing that. So what I need you to do is just go to, um, if you listen to it on iTunes or Stitcher or Podbay, just click unsubscribe and then immediately resubscribe and it refreshes the RSS feed and then I have you as a listener once again also I'm just gonna throw this out there real quick um, I will be out on tour all summer with Daryl Hall and John Oates squeeze is gonna open up the tour should be fun we're gonna be hitting a lot of major cities uh, arenas and amphitheaters um, reason I'm mentioning this is I would love to do a few guitar clinics I have tons of days off and um, would love to fill them with something. So you can contact me via my website, shaneterrio.com, contact at shaneterrio.com. Um, let me know if there's somebody out there, a couple stores, or you'd like to host that. I'd love to make it happen. I do get a lot of requests for um, 
lessons. I don't do that as much anymore, but this would be a fun thing to do. As always, I love your comments on iTunes. I love the the positive comments you give me. And, um, you know, if you want to support me, I don't ask anything for this this podcast, but, you know, buy some music, buy a record. I have a f- four records out. Julian has records out. And um, that makes a big difference. So I really appreciate it. Hope to see you out there. Thanks for tuning in. My guest today is Julian Coriel. You know, those of you that listen to Riff Raff on a regular basis, you know that I, I probably exclusively feature guests that I know have some sort of relationship, friendship with. I think it helps keep the show more intimate and honest, and that's how I've done it so far, and that's why they take a little longer, but I think it's worth it. But anyway, out of all the guests I've had on Riff Raff so far, I think I've known Julian the longest. We go back to the early 90s, when both of us were, we were young gun clinicians for uh, Ovation and Hammer Guitars, and we got hired along with maybe eight other people from around the country, and they flew us all to Connecticut. and. We lost touch for a few years, but we've remained friends ever since. It goes without saying that uh, Julian is a super talented, uber-gifted guitarist. Not just a guitarist, he's a great singer, plays piano, he's a total musician. Hate you, Julian. Uh, he's, uh, he's one of those guys, yeah. Um, it's not surprising, you know, his father was the late, great, Larry Coriel, who we just lost maybe three, four years ago. I would think no one would argue with that, that he was the founding father of fusion guitar, one of the greats. And Julian grew up, you know, this is his DNA, so he's carrying the torch. And Hendrix was a fan of Julian's dad. How many people can say, yeah, my dad jammed with Hendrix? You know, that's uh, pretty, pretty cool stuff. But um, he's currently with Alanis Morissette. Also, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, but he's done tons of other stuff. Uh, Leonard Cohen, Amy Mann, Carol King, Madeline Peru. Uh, he played with Japanese pop stars. He did a whole album in Japanese called Gaijin, which I loved. It means foreigner. Maybe I'll put some of that up. So I've been trying to make this happen for a while. Finally, I was in L.A. and We got together, had dinner, went over to Julian's studio. He handed me a guitar and... Um, plugged me into his uh, his baby, his uh, 65 Vibralux, and we're off and running, figure out what we're going to play, get things going. This one has a lot of great stuff in it, so I hope you like. Thank you.
hard. Sure. Okay. We good? All right. Alone together.
sound fantastic man beautiful beautiful i think we're the only probably the only people right now in venice beach california <laughs> playing alone together at this time in the afternoon i think i think you may be right it's <laughs> as massive a city as la is I'm, I'm pretty confident in that and man let me make sure this is running you know i just was think i was thinking of something while while we were playing we haven't played together since we were about 19 years old oh boy which was what about Eight years ago, yeah, seven maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I'm sitting here in um, in Venice Beach, California, with my my bro from a long time ago, Julian Coriel. Thanks for uh, making this happen, man. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you, man. Yeah, and Julian's really got a hip studio here, and hooked me up with his guitars, and he you let me play through your baby, the Vibralux. That's right, the '63 or '64 Vibralux. That's my yeah. favorite. Uh, amp just for fun yeah for fun stuff so it right, sounds great man you sound great through it last time i saw you was uh and heard you you were playing with your dad at the blue note oh boy okay that was what, four years ago three four yeah. years ago yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and that was cool it was really hip thank you yeah that was that was really special um gosh I'm, i sure i sure do miss uh him and i sure do miss playing with him those any, really any opportunity to play with him was always yeah. uh just like Christmas Day, man. Yeah. Well, yeah. I want to, um, you know, talk a little bit about that and just keep it loose, man. But um, yeah, <laughs> I want to tell everybody, first time I met Julian, we, we did clinics together for Ovation and Hamer Guitars back in the, you know, God, it feels like 50 years ago, but it was, uh, it was early 90s. It was only 36. <laughs> it wasn't that long ago. But uh, we were just, we were both like 19 years old. Yeah. And yeah. I remember they, they picked guitar players from all over the country and we all flew together to connecticut yep and i remember meeting julian and you just got out of berkeley yep and that's i remember right. you were wearing like a you had this red sport coat and you were chain smoking cigarettes and i was like man this dude says fuck like every other word <laughs> <laughs> and then we hung out and played like yeah i remember you showed me like bird changes or something oh yeah man you you yeah, just yeah. got out of berkeley and you had the uh the ovation the um the um yeah, bu- well, burst uh yeah, as it was a 
maybe a balladeer or something. One of those, or it was, you know, it's funny that guitar was actually a great player guitar, and I forget the exact model. It was a, um, I know every year they did like a collector's model, and that particular run was a great one, and they were giving those guitars out like, um, like MAGA hats at a Trump convention. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everybody that I knew had one of those guitars. And it's funny, you look back now, like, there's like, a, there's funny, it was like a, a virus, you know? It was mm-hmm. like herpes, those guitars. Like, one guy caught one, and then the other guy would touch it, and suddenly he'd have one. <laughs> I see these pictures from that time, like, everybody. Um, but that particular model... Like the the neck was so good for players, you know. Like that yeah. was the thing that those guitars excelled yeah. at, right? They felt like electric necks, right? Yeah. And the electronics at the time were really uh, solid, right? right? I mean, today they sound a little bit brittle, but back then that was like state of the art. Yeah. But there's funny pictures that'll pop up even now on social media. I'll see one with like Borelli Legren is playing one of those, and Vic Juris is with him, and then like there's even one where my dad is playing one and emily remler who's no longer with this who was a hardcore you know gibson uh 330 i think that was her guitar she played forever but even she was playing one for a minute um and then of course mclaughlin absolutely um but like that there was a couple years there were like everyone picked up that guitar and everyone liked it and everyone got one and that was the guitar that i was playing and i remember even some of the shredder guys at that meeting where you and i met who didn't even play acoustic they picked up my guitar and they're like hey man can i just use this on the gig because this feels like my oh, electric yeah. right and they really uh, excelled at that ovation making those electric feeling acoustic guitars right yeah they're, they're still around i think you know absolutely absolutely but that was how we met and we had fun and our crazy uh times and then we lost touch for years and years and believe it or not facebook when i first got on facebook some kind of way i i stumbled across your name and then that's how we reconnected and i sent you a that was years ago oh, i don't it, even is, use it anymore it yeah like 10 years ago wow and that's how we reconnected yeah amazing but uh here we are and now we're sitting in uh you know anyway thank so you I'm, I'm glad we could get together ditto to you it's it's always uh you know it's a funny thing I think all musicians I think all musicians are insecure not the least of which are guitar players right yeah um and I'm just so glad that we've lived long enough at least for me when I play and especially when I play with another guitarist it doesn't matter if I know them or not but if I know them and I respect them like I do you my default is oh I'm really excited to um to know this person and have a, I want to have a beautiful musical experience with them. And at the time that you and I met, my mindset was probably something like, I have to play faster than everybody yeah. to feel okay about myself, right? Yeah, that's normal when you're young. That and how can I get beer later? <laughs> <laughs> Who's going to buy me beer? That's right. <laughs> yeah, but no, that's normal. I mean, it. I, I guess there's nothing wrong with that, but no, I think that's I think that's part of being young. But it's funny the things that mattered to me when we first met musically. I'm wary of now, you know, overplaying and uh, 
not listening, for example, right? Like when I was a young guy, I didn't listen very well to others and I overplayed. And so today, those things I'm not as interested in. And I'm, the things that never would have been interesting to me back then, which is like, what does this other person have to say? And I get to learn from them and enjoy them. You know, that that's, uh, I'm drawn to that now, but it took all those years yeah. right, to get there. Yeah, that's, I guess that's normal, man. Well, what was it like? Like your dad, Larry Coriel, was one of the you know most famous jazz. He was a pioneer of fusion. I mean, everybody knows that. What was it like growing up? I remember asking about this years ago, and you said, "I remember you said my dad doesn't have to practice. It just I, I think you told me that it just comes naturally." But what was it like when you would growing up playing guitar? I mean, you were around. It was a mixed bag. I mean, on the positive side, it's probably everything that you w might imagine having access to him, uh, unfettered access, you know, was, you know, it's like, it's like having the, the you know, it, it, it's money in the bank, man. I mean, I, I, the, the, jo I think the joke that I used to tell you was there was a Scott Henderson record that you and I both liked. Players. Players. And that he did that solo on the creeping terror. Yeah. And I just, you know, this is before the internet. This is before um, Pro Tools or, you know, any sort of technology that could really help you slow down records. We had tape machines that slowed things down, but those were expensive and you had to order them out of the back yeah. of magazines. And I never had, I never got one of those. You know, I just used yeah. to use vinyl records or just a tape player and just stop and rewind, stop and rewind. That's how I learned most of my stuff. But I couldn't cop this one solo from Scott. It was too hard. And I just talked to my dad about it. And he said, well, let's just call Scott and ask him. You yeah. know, yeah. <laughs> and so and he did. And Scott picked up the phone on the other end. and was super gracious. And it's like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll show you how I did it. In fact, send your son out to L.A. I'll give him a lesson while we're at it. And, and he did. Wow. I mean, like he just yeah. was super sweet. So in that way, I really felt like an ultra privileged kid. Right. Um, and the people I knew, I thought everybody was like that. I, you know, I, I knew. The family friends, you know, John McLaughlin and Al Demiola and right. John Schofield, and the list just goes on and on. I thought every guitar player was that good because yeah. those were the guitar players I knew. And it wasn't until much later that I realized, like, that was the best of the best. Yeah. Um, so in that way, I was I was very blessed. But the flip side of that was uh, my, my pop was pretty hard on me um, when I wanted to be a player. He had very high standards, not surprisingly. And um, so, you know, that that edge cuts both ways, you know. Yeah. Um, but if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't change it because the things I got to experience, I realized were some of the greatest moments of my life. Um, just hanging around geniuses. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, getting to play with him. Uh, for years and years and oh, years, it's special. Yeah, was it's beyond really was beyond special. In fact, it's one of the reasons I don't actually play jazz much now because the experiences I have playing jazz now are, are, aren't as aren't usually as fulfilling. Yeah, because on top of the musical stuff, it was really how we hung out. You know, the way that like I'll take my kids swimming, and we'll swim in the pool, or <laughs> we'll play hide and seek. You know, my dad didn't do those things with me. He didn't really know how to express affection in those ways but whenever we played i really felt 
his love for me. And so it's so much more than just wow. playing tunes. It's like, this is how I get a hug wow, from my yeah. dad is, yeah. you know, playing Stella or, or whatever, you know. It means a lot. I was glad to see you at Blue Note that night. I, I could tell it was special, you know. Was, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and those guys were all heroes, you know. You had Al- Alphonse, Alphonse Muzan, Muzan, who's no longer, who's with, no longer with us as well. And I think probably John Lee was playing bass that night. Um, these were guys and I grew Randy up. Randy Brecker. Randy Brecker, my goodness, right? Dad, that was, uh, what was it? Um, uh, Alphonse Muzan, Randy Brecker. What was the band? Uh, something House. Uh, 11th House. The 11th House, that right. So that's and, and that's what we were doing. We were doing yeah, the 11th House. That's right. The reunion. Music reunion. And I, honestly, man, it was one of those moments where I said, well, if my last name wasn't Coriel, I probably wouldn't be up on this stage. Um, that being said, I've worked very hard to have a seat here and I'm just grateful to be a part of it, you know? Yeah. Well, it's not like you're the, you can't hang. You're, you're definitely a world-class player, man. jammed with Hendrix too oh absolutely yeah that that for sure I know happened yeah. I, have, I even have pictures of that wow and I think maybe it was are you experienced it was one of those records Jimmy asked my dad to play on it and my dad was there at Electric Ladyland um and he said you know man you got it covered <laughs> you don't yeah. need me uh but but he was invited to play wow. on, on one of those records um but they were buddies yeah you know, and, Gi- and Jimmy Greenwich would Village scene and that old Greenwich Village scene, and, and and Jimmy would actually, when they would jam, sometimes Jimmy would just play bass because it was more fun for him. Mm. You know, he didn't have to be the fireball that he was; he could just play and back somebody else up that he respected. And right, um, and I know Jimmy loved jazz, and my mom was also, you know, again very tight with Jimmy. And whenever I would ask her about Jimmy she just would say the same thing which was like he was a really spiritual person which is an odd thing for someone to say when you're asking about a musical genius right yeah you would expect her to say well you know he was practicing all the time or he was listening to uh you know Dvorak or something but no it's like her standard answer every time I asked was well he was just a really spiritual guy which I think explains why his music has continued to resonate with so many people even if you're not religious or spiritual, the idea that somebody is uh, looking at life through that lens of something greater or bigger than themselves, I think that you can feel that in their art. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. Yeah. There's so much more out there 
but I can't help but care. This pain is pretty fair. I'd say we're done, but I'm not ready yet. I just cannot forget the ways I tried to make you feel. You know, we've crossed paths a little bit. Like we were both doing Madeline Peru's gig for a while. That's right. It's like we. It's weird. We were just talking when you were setting up how things just come full circle. You know. It's but that was players. great. Yeah, I yeah, love that. Yeah, yeah. How small the community is. Yeah. And I always knew, like, like you were always one of those guys. It's like you worry about some people because you just don't know what life's going to throw at them. But I, I've never worried about you because you're so talented and. Uh, you're such a smart individual. You know, you have to be intelligent to survive in the music business, in any business, and the music business is no different. But you're so gifted musically, and you're also such an intelligent guy. Oh, man. I never, I never worried about you. I was always like, wow, I get to see what cool thing you're doing next. Well, we're, likewise. I mean, we're still, we're still at it. <laughs> sure. But there are guys like who I've known over the years and I think, oh, my God, what a genius, but just a disaster of a yeah. person. And I just hope Couldn't that they live together. to see tomorrow. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of your first record, yeah, tell me about your first record. I think you you it was. I remember you played me something once, and Michael, you had Michael Brecker on it. You had like some cats on it. Besides, so. well, you know what's funny? I was living in New York in the '90s, honing my craft, and and I really wanted to be a great jazz musician. And yeah. I was very poor, and there was a couple of independent Japanese jazz labels that would run, you know, cottage industry labels, you know, guys, these Japanese guys would come to New York and they would hang out in the jazz clubs and they would listen. And if they liked what they heard, they would uh, just approach you after the gig and say, Hey, I have a, a label. And uh, would you like to make a record for my label? And it was easy money and I was really poor. And so I remember like, 
this guy offered me a, 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 dirt, a down and dirty Japanese uh, jazz record deal, right? Mm-hmm. And so that first one we made, it was live to, uh, to DAT, D-A-T, two-track, right? Ooh, that's brave. Yeah, but, that, but that's the thing. It was, th- this guy was really smart. He's like, I'm not going to pay for tape. I'm going to rent a really good studio, and I've seen this guy play, and he's got what it takes. And so I'm just going to have him put his band together and just play live. And so the first record I made was, was that. And um, that, was, that was something. That, that was, we made, we, I made it in maybe a day or two wow. days. Well, Every that's th- the way the old cats used to and do it. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think that a lot of those guys, uh, you know, jazz is much more lovingly revered in Japan. And I think that a lot of those guys who own those small labels uh, saw it through that romantic lens, like, well, well, I'll do it like, like the old Blue Note sides used to be, you know, the old Savoy sides or something, right? So yeah, we did that, and it sold a respectable number, yeah, which is, you know, for jazz record, I maybe sold like seven or eight or nine thousand copies. I don't know. I never got the final tally, but it sold enough where he wanted to make another one. Now that record. You know, I I can't listen to that record today because. It was so I was so compromised, you know. It was made in such a hasty fashion. I had no idea what I was doing. But then I guess he made enough money off it where he wanted to try to go bigger. So he gave me a slightly bigger budget, and he really wanted it to be more of a uh, a contender in America. And so, you know, I. He asked me if I could get Michael Brecker to play on the record. And uh, Michael was a family friend. And he was a hero of mine. Um, and I, it was very, you know, hard for me to ask him. I was extremely nervous, but I did. And Michael was so kind and gracious. And he said he would come down and play on the record. And I wrote, I wrote two songs with him in mind, but one in particular I wrote for him. And um, it's just incredible what he, what he did on it. It's a, it's a really hard piece. And I sent him the music the night before, and this was a huge life lesson for me. Uh, he called me up. He said, I can't play on your session because your chart is uh, illegible. Hmm. He said, I'm so sorry. You know, it's if you're going to hire me to come in you need to send me a clean chart and i was i was probably 22 years old yeah you know if that i just didn't know i I, you know nobody people i'm sure people had tried to teach me you know god knows my dad had chewed me out enough times about writing crappy charts i used to write charts for his band you know it was sort of like homework he used to do for me like he would say i need you to write charts for you know jeff andrews go write charts for jeff andrews you know things like that and he would look at my charts and say, oh, these are terrible. You know, you got to redo this. So it was probably something like that. You know, I sent Michael a shitty chart. And he said, look, I really want to play on your record. And I only have tomorrow to do it. So, you know, you got to get a better chart. And I called up a buddy who had great handwriting. And I just begged him. I said, look, I'll pay you whatever you want, man. You just got to write a nice chart for Michael. And, and he did. It was a beautiful chart. I still have it. And I faxed that to Mike that night. And Mike said, okay, I can play over this. This is great. And we got into the studio. And... um I said, okay, Mike, you got the chart. Any questions? He's like, well, are you aware of what you wrote? 
I said, well, sure. I mean, I wrote it. He's like, yeah, but are you aware of what you wrote for the saxophone? I said, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, most sax players actually couldn't play what you wrote. And I said, what are you, what are you talking about? He's like, it's out of the range of the oh. tenor sax. And I said, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. Do I need to rewrite it? And it was such a beautiful thing because there was no ego the way he said it, but he just said, no, no, I can play it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can, I can transpose. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, it was remarkable, man. He read this, and it's a very difficult head. Not um, what's the name of the tune? Because I want to put, I'm going to put little excerpts. Yeah, yeah. It's music. called it's called Stacy's Contusion, um, and I and I named it that because I had a buddy who was a sax player who idolized Mike, and I was listening to songs in the key of life a lot at that time. And for those that know, Contusion is like Stevie's for, foray into fusion. His very short-lived for, foray into fusion. It's, it's quite. It's quite legit, though. It's a great mm-hmm, tune. Mm-hmm. And I had been out with my buddy Stacy a couple of nights before, and we were young guys, and we were definitely doing things that today we'd be arrested for. And he ended up getting badly beaten up, which was really, you know, scary. We just went to the wrong part of town. You know, it was one of those things. And I remember we went back to my place, and you know, I, I, we had to kind of clean him up. It's one of those deals, and he had gotten a, you know, pretty bad contusion, and I just felt so bad for him. And yet, Mike was his idol, and uh, just the juxtaposition of like this amazing thing about to happen in my life, and this really horrible thing with my friend that had just happened. And I said, okay, well, I'll just call this song Stacy's Contusion, and um, <laughs> not song for Stacy, not or, song for Stacy, yeah, or my buddy Stacy, <laughs> Stacy's Blues. Yeah, I should have. No. I, sh- I should have. <laughs> This is why I don't put out records anymore, Shane. <laughs> know it. Lady, I wrote it. Um, <laughs> but, but Michael came in and he played the hell out of it. And um, he did like three solos, you know, three takes. Each one is uh, not even better than the last. Each one was a masterpiece. And I remember me and my buddy, the guy who uh, did the chart for him you know that was the condition he's like look i'll do the chart for michael but you gotta let me be there when he cuts the solo i was like absolutely so we were sitting there with our jaws on the floor each take michael took was just phenomenally perfect and of course after every take michael would look up sheepishly and say like was that okay i can do it better and we're just kind of like pinching each other and kicking each other under the console like uh you know mike uh, that's pretty good uh you know if you want to do another one uh, you can do another one you know meanwhile we're like dying inside this this is like uh like Beethoven is sitting there uh, playing cadenzas for you. You know, it was it was outerworldly how good it was.
And then they released that record, and I know that the label put a lot of money promoting that record, uh, into promoting that record, and it was an indie label, and <clears throat> I don't think they got the kind of numbers they wanted, and I felt really badly for them mm. because they were really pushing me to do something a little more commercial. Now, I had a manager at the time who was a pretty nutty guy, but he was very ambitious and kind of along the lines of those people who feel entitled to exist in show business, and they feel that there's nothing wrong with getting in someone's face and saying, you need to listen to this. You need to check this out. Uh, and he, uh, I was his client, and so he sent that record with Michael on it to a bunch of labels in the city. And I got a bunch of labels wanted to sign me as a jazz guitarist. Now, the problem is, is that at that time, we were kind of at the height of smooth jazz. And so I ended up signing to a label that shall remain nameless um, and I remember they brought me in and they said, look, we really want to sign you and we're listening to your Japanese uh, jazz record here that uh, we got a hold of. And some of it kind of sounds like Schofield and some of it kind of sounds like Mike Stern and some of it kind of sounds like Scott Henderson. And those were all my influences at the time. I had many more than that, but those were the ones that I was wearing on my sleeve. Yeah, I know. And then uh, I remember the president of the label said, but there's a couple of songs in here that really sound like that kind of middle-of-the-road Matheny stuff that's real hot right now. And what do you think about doing a whole record like that? And I'll tell you, Shane, if I could go back and do it all over, I would have said, not my thing, have a good day. But I was so poor. I mean, really, I was really poor. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was probably making about, honestly, maybe $10 a night uh, on the low end, maybe 50 60 on the high end, playing jazz. Um, like I was really, really poor. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. And um, they were offering me a, a, what to me seemed like a highly lucrative record deal mm -hmm. if I played ball, so to speak. Yeah. And so I made a record for those guys. And my secret plan was to make a really hip smooth jazz record. <laughs> and I remember I brought in like Greg Osby and I brought in Bob Mincer and Billy Hart. Mm. Like I really brought in like guys I respected who I thought would tip the scale in the right direction. But in the end, the people that worked for the label just kept uh, turning down all the hip stuff and they just kept pushing, you know, more drum loops and you're playing too many notes. More octaves. Yeah, it was, I remember like, I remember doing one solo in the studio. I was so proud of it. And the A&R guy was like, yeah, but can you just play less? If you just play less, I think we can get this on the radio. And it's a very cliche story. Um, and so I, I, I ended up releasing this extremely compromised record, which I would never allow to happen today. But I was a super young guy, maybe 23 years old. I really wanted a career. I really wanted to differentiate myself uh, from my father's shadow, which I did a terrible job of because I was still playing guitar in some sort of jazz idiom. Um. But I remember I tried to do really hip covers. Like, and this was before everybody was doing Joni Mitchell covers. I mean, I'm talking about 1995. I did a Joni Mitchell cover. I did a Leonard Cohen cover. I did a Bob Dylan cover. I did a, a Sam Phillips cover, who's a great artist that should have gotten more love in the world. Mm -hmm. And they ended up axing most of those. I, I did an Elvis Costello cover, um, like an Afro-Cuban version of an Elvis Costello song. I did all these things to try to make the record hit. And they just kept destroying all the hip stuff and just leaving all of the really saccharine, 
uh, banal st- stuff that was mostly drum loops. Um, and the record came out, and of course it tanked because it was it was inauthentic. It wasn't who I really was. And I think energetically people can hear when someone's being phony. It was very Spinal Tapian, like we would do these in-stores and there would be a stack of 8x10s and the label would be sitting there and, you know, pictures of me uh, hanging on the wall like cardboard cutouts. Because I was a young guy. I was, I was good looking enough. I think they were trying to sort of, you know, maybe like a matinee idol, mm-hmm. smooth jazz guitar player kind of thing, whatever. And nobody showing up to buy mm-hmm. the record or get an autograph, you know. It really was like straight out of Spinal Tap. Um, and I remember I had these great bands guys like Kenny Wallison uh, on drums and Scott Colley on bass, like great mm. high integrity musicians. And I remember like they were looking at me like, why are you bringing us in on this jive project? Like Daniel Sedownik, like all these great guys that I admired. And I remember like they all just, like obviously I, I had disappointed them by inviting them into this, uh, you know, pretty mediocre scene but I was hoping that we could turn it around together. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I was very idealistic, yeah. but yeah. it just doesn't really work well, that man, way. You, you make the best decisions you can at the time based on what you you have going on. You know, it's easy to look back and yeah, yeah, and and that's the thing, right? If hindsight is always twenty, and I'm 20. sure it's not as bad as you probably, you know. Anyway, well, you know, the funny thing is, it begs the question: Why do we do this? And at the time, I was doing it because I needed the bread. And I also wanted to get out from under my father's shadow somewhat, or at least show him that I was uh, legit somehow. You know, if yeah. I had my own record deal and I had my own record and I was uh, making a living, then he would maybe be proud of me. Yeah. Um, and we do things for the wrong reasons sometimes. And that, in retrospect, I did what I did, but I wouldn't do it that way again, hmm. for sure. Um, well, there's a lot of things I wouldn't do either. <laughs> yeah. I mean, now, you got pon- to pony up one th- you got to tell me one thing that you wouldn't do the same. <laughs> I'd have to. Well, there just are give a me lot, one. but you kind of put me on the spot now. <laughs> just give me one, um, man. <laughs> Doesn't have to be your biggest regret, but. Um, probably staying with the Neville brothers as long as I did. It, oh, God really? bless him. I love him. But towards the end, it got sort of weird with, you know, it was, um, I don't want to take all this time, but, but I, you know, I might edit some of this out, but basically Art Neville hurt his back, had back surgery. And, so they brought in Ivan Neville, Aaron's son, to play Keith. And Ivan played in the expensive winos with Keith Richards. He's badass, no doubt. Yeah. But then Art came back in. But Ivan was out of a gig because he needed some bread, too. So Aaron kept his son in, Ivan in. And then Art needed somebody to help him. So he brought his son Ian in, who played guitar, oh, too. Geez. So all of a sudden now we've got three keyboard players and two guitar players. And nobody's gone anywhere. And I called it nepotistic chess. Yeah. Because it's like... And then it got kind of crazy. So I should have stepped out a few years earlier, but I thought we were going to make a record and did a record in Nashville that was really the worst record ever. Oh, wow. Major label budget. Oh, wow. But anyway, I would have bowed out earlier. That's one of my things yeah. that I I wouldn't do again is stick around that long. Even though I loved them, I'm still tight with Aaron and all that. But I look back now and I go, man, I should have, should have, should have, should have, could have, would have. Anyway. But we don't know at the time. No, you don't know at the time. And no. I was trying to buy a house. And, you, you know, it was like I didn't have any money. And it's the same shit. You're yeah. like 27 years old, yeah. 26 years old. You know, it's um, 
yeah, I'm just, man, not to turn this into, like, I, I just, people that are listening, I know there's a lot of pro guitar players that listen to this. The older I get, the more grateful I am that we get to play. And sometimes we play stuff we love. Sometimes we play stuff that's okay. But it still beats the hell out of digging a ditch or, you know what I mean? I'm like, hey, man, whatever. It's easy to go back. and. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I mean. Now, as soon as this is over, I'll think of all kinds of shit. <laughs> Like real, the real shit. But I can't think right now. I'm like, like, I'm so into what what you're doing. That's why I'm trying to think. So I'm not really thinking about my own. Thing, well, but but the thing I want to say to that, you know, we're talking about what wonderful problems we had. You know, here I am whining about. Well, I didn't like my my record deal. Yeah, and, and you're whining about you didn't like I your gig like with, steak. with legends. You know. Yeah that the world loves right it just got weird that's all i'm not saying i didn't like it but yeah but i think that's important for people to understand that on the one hand we have no right to complain about any of this because we're not digging ditches and on the other hand which is equally important no offense to ditch diggers. no we love ditch diggers yeah if you're a digger i have utmost respect um on the other hand whatever your situation is whether it's a gig with a legendary band or a record deal or you know, working for a, uh, an, you know, a, a boss in a law firm or any, what have you, you're still going to have to deal with trials and tribulations and whatever level of suffering you have experienced, that is real to you. And uh, that's why I never want to minimize anyone's suffering because to each, to each of us, our suffering is as real as it's going to get. And then you step away from that and all these years later we look back and go like, well, we were so lucky, right? to do any of this and of course today shane i just kind of chuckle when anybody wants to pay me to do music still i just think it's hilarious like really you still want to give me money to play guitar i mean do you know what they call guitar at uh at the musicians institute in los angeles where i used to teach the, the the young students now like especially like the edm kids they call it the old man stick. Are you serious? <laughs> of course I'm serious. Wow. Like, it's really, this is an anachronism. It's a piece of wood uh, with some metal strewn across it. I mean, it's it's a very primal thing. And, oh my gosh, like, you want to pay me to play this piece of wood with strings on it? And you want to pay me handsomely to do it? Yeah. Like, so much so that I could take care of my family? It's It's beyond gratitude. It's... It's it's like I don't even believe it's real at this point. I'm not a young guy. I'm not, uh, I don't have the young guy looks that I had back in the day when people used to tell me, oh, well, you're a good looking guy and we can sell you and market you. You know, all that stuff is long gone, but you still want me. Well, geez, I'll, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> you know, thanks. Sure. But you're working, man. You're, you're a working cat. You're playing with, you know, Lannis and, and, um, blood sweat and tears you're producing i mean you're you know yeah and 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 i'm i i'm super grateful for that stuff and the thing i'll say to that is in spite of the changes in the industry and in spite of the changes that you and i and everyone goes through in the aging process uh which maybe make one less employable depending on the situation i don't know sometimes it makes you more employable depending on your qualifications we have a certain level of expertise, you know, that is not as common as some people may think. And especially now with technology making things so easy uh, in music, it's less common to have a certain kind of expertise that we possess. Um, 
and and there and it is valued and and I find uh that people will still you know they'll still pay you a fair living wage if you have those skills as long as you're not an asshole <laughs> you know that's yeah. sort of the critical addendum yeah right because we all know genius musicians that are just they're just awful people right and those people are unemployable yeah you know like for for whatever it is i do with alanis or blood sweat and tears if i was a difficult uh, individual i would not have those gigs for more than one show yeah um because th- that uh divaism any of that sort of uh the world revolves around me and my talent uh belief doesn't fly in in that kind of professional setting it just doesn't and i think that's something that is hard to learn in the beginning you know mm-hmm. I th- and i think it's taken me a lot of years to really understand <clears throat> that ultimately we're in a service position yeah especially being on a tour bus or it's a it's more about the, like it's a given you can play if you're there yeah. but you, nobody wants to hang around an asshole and if you're you're in a lot of compromised positions sometimes on a bus or a plane or you're tired or whatever and nobody wants to be with somebody that's the downer all the time so yeah that's uh that's a good lesson in it's about the hang a lot too and i mean 90 percent of it's the hang and it's funny like some of our heroes who have you know dared cross into the more popular music world and have only kept those gigs for maybe a tour at the most or even yeah. less you know uh on some level if you know them yeah that it partially has to do with their inability to play nice so yeah. to speak and, and i res- i respect that on a certain level it's like yeah man you gotta be true to yourself and yeah at the same time if you don't need that gig you shouldn't be doing it anyways yeah let somebody else do it yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> let somebody else do it i mean trust me shane <laughs> if i had had a a good vigorous career as a solo artist i'd, I'd be doing it right now i'd be yeah. a, stepping on stage to play one of my songs for people but my career uh, didn't, as much as I wanted it to, it, it just didn't go that way. Mm-hmm. And so I've ended up making a, a fine living being of service to others, mm-hmm. um, which I love the security. You know, my kids eat and they go to school and mm-hmm. <clears throat> I have roof, a roof over my head and they do too and all that. But of course, if you are an artistic kind of person and if you have any sort of leadership uh, architecture inside you, uh, it's a sacrifice to yeah. to help others realize their dreams. In your, yeah, yeah, and you you know as well as anyone, you're similar, um, and yet you're also excellent at uh, getting along with people, which is crucial. It's just crucial if you want to survive in this business. Yeah, it's 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 as much a mind thing as it is playing. Man, you played a solo on. You played on this Mark Broussard record. Mark Broussard's a great Louisiana singer. I worked with him on and off. And there was one solo. I did a fill-in thing for Mark once and had the tunes, and I didn't have that much time, and I'd shedded him really fast. And there was one tune, and I was like, damn, let me hear that solo again. What the hell is this? Who is this? And I looked it up. Julian Correos. Son of a bitch. I got to learn this thing. <laughs> Sorry. And I kind of got it close, but yeah, it was, man, I don't remember the, I'm going to find it and put it on here, but that was a ripping ah, solo. Well, I, I, it was I, in C minor or something. Yeah. Or something. I think that was probably Rocksteady. Yeah. That's the one that comes back to haunt me. 
totally unexpected. Uh, somehow that solo has become a, a litmus test for young players. Like someone will send me a link every now and then of like some young kid on YouTube is like, Oh, I'm going to learn the rock steady guitar yeah. solo now. And I've had like young guys contact me and they want a lesson just, 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 to, learn wow, the, just really? to learn the solo. Oh, yeah. Shit. Um, but the funny thing is we were making that record and uh, that was Mark's major label uh, debut. Right. And he was such a happy guy because he had budget. Um, you know, this was like the very end of the record era, record companies. And Calvin was... was uh, Calvin yeah. was playing his butt off on that. Chad, great band. Chad Gilmore. Yeah. yeah. Just, just killing band. But Mark was like a kid in the candy store. He had his great band, great studio. Everything was to his uh, wishes. I remember he came up to me. He's like, hey, man, you know, I got great players on this record. Sonny Landreth is going to play on it. And, you know, he was just name checking all kinds of great guys. And he's like, but, man, there's one song. I, I want to give this solo to you. I really want you to do your thing. And I just remember thinking, like, you know what? And I was doing, I was doing a lot of sessions at the time. That was, like, my the era when you still had session work in L.A. And it's actually a great, a great time to be a working guitarist because you make a fine living and you could stay in town. Um but yeah, he just said, like, I really want you to do your thing. And I just said, well, you know what? If I'm actually getting asked to do my thing on somebody else's record and it's not jazz, it's pretty rare that that happens. And I said, I'm going to come up with the solo that pleases me. And if he doesn't like it, then I'll just say, well, hey, man, I'll give you something mm -hmm. simpler. Yeah. But I'm at least going to try. And I remember I went home that night and I did, I did compose that solo. You went Tom Schultz on it a little bit? I did, man. I, I, I did because I just, it was one of those times where I, I had the confidence to say, well, I know who I am. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not, you know, the, the bread is, you know, I'm happy to get paid for this, but it's not going to buy me a house or anything. You're so, right. like, I got to get something out of this for myself that's yeah. a little bit more than just a paycheck for a couple of weeks. Can I put right? you on the spot? I don't remember the lick, but can you play it? Uh, you know, that solo. It, not the whole thing. I, I remember there was a descending yeah, thing. Yeah, well, here's, okay, so here's the thing. So that. So what I draw, what I put in that solo was uh, a pattern that I've been working on for years and years and years, right? And I give this to a lot of my students now, you know, because it's not something I like to play uh, because it's uh, it's too much of a pattern. Meaning, yeah. if I'm doing it, I'm not really creating in the moment. Right. But it's such a useful pattern that I like to give it to my students uh, because it's a great trainer to uh, understand how to create a certain kind of intervallic excitement uh, that sounds a little bit fresher. And um, so, or maybe it's, I'm trying to remember the key that we used to do then. Is it C minor rock steady? I think, when I don't remember. There, oh yeah. You better be ready to rock steady. Yeah. When we get there. So if you just do that progression, so it was like, and so here's the lick, right? That was nice, right? And that's what it is, right? And go back to that B flat right now. Nice little, right? Uh, yeah. And so that, and, and and this is an exercise that I give to my students where you can make a whole scale out of it, right? And you can do it. Um, and so when I teach it to them, I show them the basic, which is. Mm 
you should also learn it ascending. Nice. And you can make an, an, a whole chord scale out of it. You know? Yeah. Now you can do a nice. whole thing with it. You can do all kinds of stuff. Um, and like I said, I give I give it away now because uh, I, I'm not precious about it. Because if I use it, I'm 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 not at my best anyway. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, but I really wanted to throw something in there that was special and memorable. And I remember like I wanted to do a little bit of a tip of the hat to Carlton because I loved you know Larry mm -hmm. was a hero of mine on all those Steely Dan records. So I remember starting with like a Carlton thing. So if you play that progression, one, two, three, four. Right? So that kind of Carlton thing, right? And then this intervalic thing. Nice. Yeah. And then I remember... Just a nice soulful bluesing. And then maybe a little bit of like Steely Dan. Now that's not exactly the solo. I'm just no, improvising it's great. now. But but it was that kind of idea. And then I remember. Um, it's I fun wanted, to play over. Actually, it's fun to play over, right? Yeah, it's just a nice. And I and I just remember there's lots of opportunities for nice uh, pentatonic. You know, you can just George Benson the fuck out of it. Do all yeah. that kind of stuff. You know, you can do all kinds of wankery. So I did that solo. I wrote it and I worked it out, which I, I almost never do on pop sessions because I want the spontaneity to be to, to be there. But I also knew too that if I hadn't, if I didn't nail it the first time, that Mark might lose. Uh, confidence in me and I didn't want anyone in that room to lose confidence in me I wanted to walk in there and drop that solo and, and all they could say then was well we don't like it but you played the hell out of it and that's fine <laughs> yeah, right but yeah. I didn't want them to say well yeah. you didn't really play it well yeah. you know and so I did work it out and I came in and I remember it wasn't even my guitar there was a uh, it was like a 58 uh, Les Paul Black Beauty that belonged to Dave Jordan, uh, who uh, who owned the studio, and Dave was a big producer with like Offspring and bands like that, and he had this ridiculous '58 Black Beauty Les Paul, which I had the opportunity to buy at one point, but couldn't afford. Uh, a friend of mine ended up buying it, who's a gear collector, and he still gives me crap about it. He's like, "Hey, I got that Rocksteady guitar," <laughs> but anyways, so we plugged that guitar into like a real vintage Marshall, just the best beautiful Marshall, and I just. I just, you know, I dropped that solo as, as, as hard as I could with all the confidence I could muster. And I remember I looked up at Mark and he was just grinning ear to ear. And I looked around the room at the producer and I looked at the engineer and I was just checking everybody's eyes. I said, man, if, if, I, if, there's, if there's one doubter in the room, it's not going to fly. But everybody was lit up. Good. And I yeah. said, all right, I took a risk and it paid off. Yeah. And I remember the funny thing was the next day, the producer, I guess he was friends with John Mayer. And he played it for John, and John said, "Like, uh, well, shoot, I guess the guitar solo was back, you know, um, <laughs> something funny like that. I don't even know if that really happened, but that's what they told me. 
and over the years I've had people you know continue to yeah. ask me about that solo and really it was just me taking a risk but sorry you had to learn it <laughs> yeah it was like michael brecker i mean i could learn it but it's difficult for other people no. <laughs> well you could play the hell out and i just can't wait to take this party I do like that idea, and I do miss in music, uh, especially pop music, sneaking in more sophisticated things. Yeah, a little slick stuff. Yeah, because yeah. Cause when we were coming up, there was so much more of that. Yeah. And uh, I think it's uh, a shame that young people today are, are getting a steady diet of what I consider yeah. to be mediocre harmonies. And, right. Uh, I'm kind of uh, sick of know. solos that go. Yeah. You know, that the, the yeah. kind of... Yeah. You know, the one string, which is cool, but it's like, man, you know, take a risk or something. Well, we're living in this dystopian time for popular music in a lot of ways where it's like, who could have predicted that the most uh, interesting thing that people can come up with in guitar solos now is like a uh, neutered version of of The Edge, yeah. essentially, and uh, like harmonically like a recycled U2 progression yeah. over and over. It's just, it's like all that stuff was great at the time because it was fresh it and was new. Fresh and inventive. But, you know. Yeah, I, I, Dweezil Zappa was a guest on here and we talked and, and I told him, I said, um, man, you did one of the, basically the dream interview of all time, you know, because Dweezil's buddies with Eddie Van Halen, but he, he interviewed Eddie for Guitar Player Magazine. I remember. Okay. I remember and that. And there interview. was one where Dweezil said, part of the interview, he goes, you know, um, what do you think about, you know, now it was the grunge era and he goes, you know, what do you think about the guitar solos, how they're out of fashion and this and that? And Eddie came up with a really brilliant answer. He goes, you know, man, music is an expression. And even if somebody's playing something out of tune or it's a one string solo or whatever, it's a form of expression and it's still valid. And, you know, it's it's music. And as long as people get off on it. That's what matters. And Dweezil says, yeah, but I'm sick of solos that suck. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, not everything is a guitar solo, I understand. But, yeah, you're right, man. Like, I don't know. I feel like we're dating ourselves almost now. But the people that listen to this are hip. They're like, yeah, man, I miss just a little something in there to twist the ear, you know? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, but, but that's the thing is that music is as much a cultural identifier as a hairstyle or uh, clothes, you know, and, and to some uh, certain kinds of music are going to be, you know, a heavenly experience, just absolute bliss and to others it's going to be garbage. Right. Yeah. Um, the only thing I'll say to that, the only caveat I'll add um, to those who might use that as their argument to why, the stuff that we grew up with is maybe out of fashion is that just uh, intervallically, mathematically, um, harmonically, a case can be made in any age that 
the more thoughtful you are uh, and the more imaginative you are, the greater the chance uh, something beautiful will come out of it. You know, I mean, I, I, I can still, you know, I'll, I'll still sit around and I'll, um, you know. Um, Bach? Yeah. Yeah. I don't care that that's uh, 400 years old at this yeah. point, right? It still sounds damn good to me. Yeah. Um, and of course, you take like that kind of, you know, which is straight out of Bach, and you know that's that's Eric Johnson. Yeah, the broken the broken chords. Yeah. And then you slide it right into some sort of contemporary playing today, mm-hmm. and you take that kind of movement. I mean, if you can't tell me that's not beautiful. Mm-hmm. You can say it's not your cup of tea, but you can't say that it sucks mm-hmm. because you can't say that that sucks any more than you can say a sunset sucks. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's just it's factually satisfying, right? Yeah. All the elements are there, and to those who don't find satisfaction in that, I probably am not going to ever be able to do anything for you, anyways, that you would like. So I don't mind not being invited to your party, right? Um, I mean, I just come from an era <laughs> where mm-hmm. that is exciting to me. Mm. You know, even if it's... Let's see if I, do, if I can remember that. Yeah. So 
<laughs> Man, we went from Mark Broussard to John Coltrane in like five minutes. Holy shit. Well, you know. I was watching your right hand. I kept screwing up the changes. Man, you got the really great right hand. Oh, thanks. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a free funny. floating. Like, yeah. Right? You, you, there's no anchor. You're not using an anchor. Not, not at this point. Not at this point. It, and it's a funny thing. We could do an entire... Uh, podcast just on right hand technique, right? Yeah, F- and not even touching the left hand. Yeah, Do a whole podcast on the left hand. I mean, that would be that would get maybe a dozen listeners. Oh yeah, <laughs> y- you and I listening twelve times. <laughs> 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 but what's funny is that when we were coming up, you want to talk about history? So much emphasis was on alternate picking, for example, and of course I'm Larry Coriel's son, and. I was damned if I wasn't going to be able to uh, alternate pick rapidly because that was, you know, dad's bread and butter. So there was a lot of pressure for me to learn that, um, which, of course, I devoted myself to that for many years. And then, uh, of course, there was always, and this is what I tell students, it's like, look, you've got four or five or six different ways to use your right hand at the very least. Uh, And I've spent my life exploring as many of those as possible, right? So you, you, you put the time in with alternate picking and you put the time in with uh, legato playing, which is so much about the left hand, and you put the time in with economy picking, uh, which is kind of a weird mixture of both somehow, right. and then you put the time in with sweep, yep. which is really a right-hand thing, but the left hand has to cooperate a certain way, and then you put the time in with hybrid, which is you know the pick and the fingers, and then, of course, uh, in the last five to ten years, I've played more started to play more classical guitar so you put the pick Mm. down all together and you work on all the right hand stuff without a pick i mean what a beautiful uh cornucopia right yeah Uh, of 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 exploration well you've got them all covered man were you ever did you ever shed any of the gambali stuff the uh well you know it's funny i i did i did i mean the thing i remember probably about 1986 you know the pre-internet right the internet now is just spoiled all wonder in the world you just yeah. press a button and your answer is there but back in the old days we had to hunt for that stuff and i remember a guitar player did and uh, you may remember this they did a an issue on on speed yeah remember this the, the, the flexidisc yeah <laughs> yeah and, and i had that flexidisc too right and the thing and so the thing i got from that so i shot i shot a little bit of gambalia that's a short answer but of course like and what i tell my students is look Start with an easy sweep, um, a three-note sweep, and, uh, you know, do the old Woody Woodpecker on the top three strings, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember, like, Paul Gilbert, this was his, like, uh, the first one's free and the second one you got to pay for, kids. You know, this was one of his first one's free tricks, The this uh, major arpeggio on the top three strings. Sounds like a Vegas casino. <laughs> You when you walk in, but they're, they're all in C. They're, That's right. They're all. It's, next time you play a casino, walk in Vegas. They're all C C major. I'm like, fuck, there's triads everywhere. They're taking my money. Well, hey, I think it was Howard Roberts who said, "There's no money past the fifth fret on the guitar." So yeah, the triads are going to yeah. take all, all, all. They're going to make you the money. It's above the fifth fret and. The upper structure triads that are going <laughs> to lose you money at this point. So you start, but you start with those, those three note sweeps, and then you work your way up to those full. Yeah. 
which we all did in the 80s. Yeah. But the thing that I tell my students, too, it's like, you know, man, Tal Farlow was doing that stuff mm-hmm. in the 50s. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't like Frank invented that by any means. You know, you have like, you know, all that yeah. stuff is like, uh, that's old jazzers, man. And, and all, you know. Yeah. And all yeah. that's 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 Tal Farlow stuff. Um and uh Joe Pass and, and oh, yeah. all they those serious were, chops. They were, and they were and they were sweeping them. Howard Roberts had some friggin' ridiculous chops. Oh yeah, no, those guys were those guys were insane. Those guys were insane. But like that but that, what you just did, that is you know, that is bona fide eighties. Yeah, that's right uh, there. That's, that's Vinnie this, Moore kind of a this, Yeah. That, you know. Yeah, like I, I think the first, like maybe Ingve or Vinnie Moore. Yeah, one of those guys um, that did it. Even like Warren DeMartini used to do uh, some of those great. Warren was more sweet. those kind of. Yeah, those kind of wide interval. And now you're getting into like a little bit of the George Lynch stuff yeah. too, like that that whole that little that they all went down that one road for about four years, yeah. where they did that sort of um, like extended pentatonic shape sliding uh-huh. right thing that you were just doing. Yeah. And and they always had these long skinny fingers, you know, these long pinkies, you know, these sort of Paganini esque pinkies, right, to do that kind of stuff. Um, and those guys were incredible. Oh yeah, yeah, Warren. You know? Yeah, I can't do it anymore. But I used to be. You know, you do all these. If I yeah. wanted to, I could do it. But yeah, that's all those. But but Frank, you know, economy picking. Yeah, well, that is that economy picking. Why do they call it economy? <laughs> It's that's right. It's, it's cons- not. It's not first class picking. No, it's economy. Economy. Picking. It's economy. Coach picking. Pl- I guess I was more economy <laughs> plus. Economy comfort. That's right. I mean, the economy the stuff is great though. It, it, I love. I mean, I I use all four or five of those techniques. You know, the economy stuff is great. Yeah, I couldn't do that uh, if I were alternate picking. It would end up having to be more something like, you know, and that's yeah. that's that stuff from the seventies that my dad and. McLaughlin and, and uh, Demiola were doing. Yeah, where it's that's it's just, hard. Man, it's to play it's so brutal. Pattern. It's yeah. so brutal. I mean, we used to sit around, and then of course you you um, you mute it, and you get the Demiola thing. Yeah. Especially if you start doing any sort of Phrygian. Um, but that even that is um, that was legato. You really have to be pure about it. That's economy. Uh, let me see. Here's like the classic. You know, there we go. Where it's just it, it really just you're you're blowing out your wrists. And I remember Al used to say like he used to frown upon the guys who didn't pick every note because it's a different uh, it's a different form of expression. I, and I love it all, you know. I, I love it all. I, I think it's all useful. Um, but whichever one you favor, uh, that gives you your, your identity in a way. Yeah, right? well, it's more of a bebop thing, pick every note. But, you know, Mike Stern told he tell me all the time, he goes, man, I can't slur. No, I always wanted to slur, and I always I never do it. I just pick every note. But Matheny never does, and Sco never does. No, no, and, and that's, that's so funny, right? Like, Stern's thing, yeah, very much... Very much a, you know, like, you know. Pat Martino kind of thing. Yeah. And then. 
<laughs> hello, I'm Mike Stern. Let's say hello, I'm Mike Stern. Yep. <laughs> or, but that, that's actually Les Paul. That comes from Les. Really? Absolutely. And that's the thing, man, is that that was Les's thing. You know, this sort of... Um, Oh, that, the, the whole tone. Yeah, and uh, Danny Gatton was one of my heroes too. You know, and that's really hard to do. Right? And that's where Mike kind of just changed yeah. it to. Yeah, yeah, but that's that's straight. That's straight really? Les Paul. That's no straight shit. Les Paul. I never Absolutely. Knew that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's McCoy. Yeah, but then yeah, and of course you have Pat's thing, which is much you know. Uh, yeah you know, which it's so funny because i always no no disrespect to pat but if you just turn the treble back on <laughs> oh i have a funny story about that one night i was on this tour bus okay and this is i was on the i was on a tour and somebody i heard somebody put on a record i was listening to it and it was Bruce Hornsby. Okay. Oh yeah, Harbor we'll, Light. Check it out. So I'm, yeah. I'm listening to it, going, Yeah. Oh wow, yeah, man, Bruce Hornsby. And I hear the guitar solo, right? Yeah. And I go, Wow, that's, wow, that's really interesting, man. That cat is like, you know, really interesting interval, beautiful solo, beautiful feel, tone. And I go, It. Yeah. And then I look at the credit, Pat Metheny. Yeah. And I'm going, Hmm, he must have. Went looked at his guitar, the tone knob, and went, "What's this thing do?" <laughs> yeah. It's like rusted shut. Like turns it up and goes, "Ah, oh, here's the tone." <laughs> oh yeah, and then after the solo's over, he's like, "I'll just put that back." <laughs> oh, that's interesting. That's what that thing does. <laughs> but that's but that's what's so magical, right? Is that with the sweep of a tone knob, you can uh, find your voice yeah. for life, right? Um, just like when when Mike discovered the the chorusing effect, he became Mike Stern uh-huh. effectively, right? Because there's plenty of uh, footage of Mike before he found the chorus pedal, and he sounds great, and he sounds like Mike, but not quite. Something's not quite there, right? Because he's playing on a a strat and he's playing with distortion with zero reverb, with zero reverb, right? And then and then you you get him through that uh, JC120 with the telly. Uh, I think it's a modified telly. Maybe you put a, a humbucker in there or something. But once you it's, get that, it's chorus, a Yamaha SPX ninety, which are ancient on the great, uh, on the box. pitch shifter yeah. thing. That's all it is. It's a pitch shifter um, preset. Wow! And and he says it, it, it's like a piano to him. It, it sounds piano when he plays trio. It's fatter. I understand that, you know. But he gets he gets a bad rap for the chorus. But well, I think it's a beautiful I, sound. Oh no, no, I love it. I, my, my point is, is that. I can't put on a chorus pedal and solo over jazz without sounding like a hacky Mike Stern. Right, that's yeah. the point. And yeah. and when I play a a hollow body, if I roll back the tem- uh, the tone too much, I sound like a hacky Pat Metheny. Yeah. And if I play a rat with a chorus pedal, I sound like a hacky Schofield. Right. Mm-hmm. And this is this is why these guys have uh, one of the many reasons they have my utmost respect. Like, not only did they put the time in on their instrument, but they found a voice. Right. Yeah. When you hear Mike play. Uh, you know, three, four notes, you know, it's Mike, same with Sco, same with Matheny. Um, and they differentiated themselves, like, because uh, there was a, for years, there was just guys, the purists, and they're all great, but until you hear enough of their playing, 
it could be like five or ten different guys right but they those three guys you know just for the sake of this conversation they figured out a little sonic uh a novel sonic idea to separate themselves from the herd right and 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 that's such a brilliant thing to do and you know god knows we've all tried to find our own version of that you know beautiful man that was so fun man thanks julian again oh man thank you that was great that was so fun so good we we can't wait 25 years again to play together Uh, it was great (laughs) it's just it's such a funny thing just to sit in a room with another guitar player that you uh you know you love and, and respect and just to make music it's such a novel concept in this day and age and gosh we should all do it as much as we can for our own happiness and uh wholeness yeah absolutely well again thanks bro appreciate it thank you for what you're doing man thank you for uh you know shining a light and what some may consider to be a bit of a dark time yeah Yeah, it was fun man Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.